Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts all about Scotland's history, obviously. Uh, I am your host, Daniel, Daniel Downey. I am a stand-up comedian based here in Edinburgh. And in Edinburgh, I do this thing called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh, or at least I do, and there's not, you know, a deadly virus kicking about the place. Uh, and what it involves is, basically, I take people around the beautiful old town of Edinburgh, I tell them about the city, I make them laugh, they laugh a lot, they learn a wee bit about Edinburgh, and that is the point of this podcast. That's the point of these series of podcasts, is I am giving Scottish history the Montebank treatment. You will, you will learn a wee bit. And you'll hopefully laugh a bit as well. Um, if you are listening to the podcast for the first time, this is your first time tuning in, uh, can I suggest you go back to the start of the series? Start from episode one. They all go in chronological order. Um, you're not going to miss out on anything. Like, I don't do any topical stuff in the podcast. You know what I mean? Um, the, the only time... The only time I plan on talking about statue defenders, for example, would be as... I don't know, if I was doing a, if I was doing a podcast on Partick Thistle... You know, because they've been they've been using statue defenders for many many seasons now. You know that's uh, that's a wee joke about Park Thistle being shite at defending there, and that's the sort of thing that you should be expecting from this podcast. All right, this is no Dan Carlin's history, the hardcore history, or anything like that. Right. Um. So if you're anything like me, and you don't really want to talk about the world at the moment because you're fairly certain it might just be ending, uh, then come with me. We'll go. Bury our heads in the sand in the 12th century for the next half hour. It's going to be good fun, I promise. Uh, today's podcast is all about King David I. Um, he was the, the youngest and the most handsome and intelligent of Malcolm and Margaret Canmore's sons. And being the youngest, no one expected him to be king. But he turned out to be one of the most successful and one of the most celebrated kings in Scotland's history. And listen... Being the youngest in my family, I can uh, I can relate to that, you know, because my my older brother, yes, you know, he might be a head teacher with a beautiful wife and two beautiful children, and his mortgage almost paid off. But uh, I I have a comedy tourism business. All right, that's two dead industries for the price of one. Take that, big bro. Yeah, aye, yeah. You're be you you're Jamie Murray my friend, and I am Andy Murray, kicking it in the dick over here, absolutely smashing it. Right, anyway, enough nonsense, let's uh, let's crack on with the podcast. Um, so here you go, without further ado, here is your podcast all about King David I of Scotland. Have fun out there, and I shall see you on the other side. Enjoy! King David was the, the most Norman of Scottish kings, and Norman society is considered the, the most civilised, the most cultured of medieval societies. And I, I must say, I do find it funny that Norman society is considered the most civilised and the most cultured because because uh, my dad's name is Norman and I have never in my life known a man as entertained by the sound of his own farts as that man is. He is the least Norman Norman you're ever likely to find, my dad. And the Normans, they were they were really were revered by people like, uh, like Sir Walter Scott. He was a, a, a huge Norman... Brown nose, right? Uh, Walter Scott, right? He thought of of us Celtic Highlanders as being kind of boorish, barbarian simpletons, all right? Not nearly as cultured as our English neighbours. Uh, I'll give you an, here's a quote from his book, right? Tales of a Grandfather, um, which is like a kind of history book that Sir Walter Scott wrote. Uh, he says, if the Saxons were inferior to the Normans in arts and learning, they were, on the other hand, 
much superior to the Scots, who were a rude and very ignorant people. Um, which is a quote I imagine Jackson Carlo has hanging up in his lavvy. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so basically, according to Sir Walter Scott, the Normans were these great, big, clever clogs who introduced kind of knightly, chivalrous culture, the class system. And as Scots, we were these kind of backwards, boorish people in desperate need of civilising. Well, Walter, all right, I may well be a great, big Celtic simpleton, but at least... Uh, then he have a stupid Norman bowl cut. Well, actually, do you know what? Until the age of 13, that's exactly what I had. My mum used to cut my hair, and, and that, that was pretty much the look that I was rocking. And, you know, to be fair, uh, if you if you were to go to Parkhead in the 21st century, you will continue to see lots of, of Celts rocking the bowl cut. Do you know what? Fuck it. Maybe, maybe Walter Scott actually had a point on that one. Aye. So on the 14th of October, 1066, William the Conqueror... He came, he saw, he conquered, all right? He lived up to his name. He defeated Harold Godwinson in the Battle of Hastings, which was the end of the reign of the Anglo-Saxon kings of England and the beginning of the Norman monarchs. Now, the Normans, like the Romans a thousand years earlier, they conquered England, but they never conquered Scotland. There was no Norman subjugation of Scotland. And listen, thank God, because, I mean, Rangers fans, they are unbearable as it is when it comes to another invading foreign king called William. If we were to tell them that there was another King William who came over here and defeated a load of Celts, they'd be unfucking bearable with their special dates that they go on about all the time. You know, like 1690, 1066, 1966, all of their favourite ones. You know, the last thing we need is some mad prick painting the blinking Bayou tapestry on the gable end of their house, you know? So it's a good thing that there was no Norman invasion of Scotland, but just because there was no Norman invasion of Scotland, that doesn't mean that Norman influence wasn't felt in Scotland. Malcolm and Margaret eh, Canmore's sons, Duncan and Edgar, for example, they required Norman assistance to put down the Celtic rebellions of Donald III. And many of the most famous family names in Scotland, or at least many of the most famous royal names in Scotland, they were invited into the country by King David. So David, um, he invited noble families and names such as, for example, the Bruces, the Balliols and the Stuarts, uh, or the Stuarts. The, the, the Stuarts name, it comes from the, the title that they held, uh, a steward of Scotland. Uh, they were famed for wearing high-vis vests and constantly telling people to sit down. So David, he invited these these famous um, Scottish, or these 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 Norman families that were going to be very famous Scottish names into Scotland, and as a result, despite the lack of any kind of Norman invasion of Scotland, Norman culture, Norman influence, unlike the Romans. It did make it to Scotland and it did have a big impact on Scottish society. So David was the youngest of Malcolm and Margaret Canmore's sons, as we already know, and he was by far the most Norman. Again, we already know that. But what is it that made him the most Norman of Scottish kings? Well, you got to go back a wee bit. you got to go back to the deaths of Malcolm and Margaret Canmore, who died within a few days of each other. And after their deaths, there was a Celtic rebellion led by Malcolm's brother, Donald Bain. This forced all of Margaret and Margaret, eh, sorry, Malcolm and Margaret's children to flee to Norman England. David, being the youngest, basically just meant that he had spent the most time 
in Norman England, he spent the most time being kind of sculpted in this version of, of Norman knightly culture. And he had a very high standing in Norman society, David. His sister Maud, um, or she was called Matilda. The English called her Maud. I don't know what that was about. They called her Good Queen Maud. That was what they, that's what they referred to her as. She was, uh, which I always think makes her sound like a dug. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, it's a Good Queen Maud. Oh, it's a Good Queen Maud. Yes, you're a Good Queen Maud. Oh, yes, you're a Good Queen Maud. Yes, you are. I'd have definitely been thrown in the tower for trying to stroke the Queen's belly. Yeah, I can tell you that. But anyway, Matilda Maud, whatever you want to call her, she was married to King Henry I, um, William the Conqueror's son, the only one of William's sons who was born in England. So David was was a prince. He was His sister was Queen of England. This gave him a very high standing in Norman England. And in 1107, there was this quite bizarre arrangement when Edgar, uh, Malcolm and... Margaret's eldest surviving son, Edgar, who was king of Scotland, when he died in 1107, Alexander, David's older brother, became king. But but there had been this arrangement reached before between Edgar, Alexander and David, whereby Alexander would be become king, but David would become viceroy of the south of Scotland. So he had control of the Lothians and of Strathclyde. It was almost certainly at the behest of the English king, Henry I, uh, again, showing how much influence David had. He had this connection with Henry, and, and he would have been pushing for this, so he had more influence in Scotland. Um, but basically, you, you had a situation, right, where, where Alexander was king, inverted commas, um, but basically, you know, most people knew that actually it was David who was running the show. Um, there's not a single example of something like that in, in, in modern-day Britain, of course, is there, Boris? No, no, absolutely not. And then, in 1114, uh, David, he married a wealthy 40-year-old widow, Maud de Senlis, Countess of Northampton. Uh, because David, he, he was like myself in that respect, in that he had a he had a thing for sexy older widows. Um, yeah, bear with me on this one, right? My first ever crush was on the Scottish Widows Lady, right? Now, the Scottish Widows is a, is a building society here in Scotland, right? And they advertise their product, their insurance, whatever the fuck it is, right? With the sexiest widow you've ever seen, right? She, this this widow gives you the, the, the like, come to bed eyes like I've never seen anything in my life, all right? As, as, a, as a young man growing up, I would look at that lassie and I'd be like, you are the sexiest fucking widow. I've, I, for one, was glad that her husband was dead. Let's just, let's just put it that way. David was crowned at Schoon in May 1124. He succeeded Alexander and became King David I of Scotland. Now, since he was already Viceroy of Southern Scotland, it made sense that in his early reign, this is where his power was concentrated, in southern Scotland. He loved the borders in particular. David was a, a real borders lad, you know. He loved nothing more than a good pair of chinos, a gilet, a rugby tie, and drinking beer out of his mate's arse cracks, you know. He was a real borders lad in that respect. And he installed great abbeys in the border towns of Melrose, Jedburgh, and Dryburgh. Now, David installed abbeys throughout lowland Scotland, and the building of these abbeys meant that he, he had to give away swathes of land that belonged to the crown. But it made economic sense, because the monks who worked at these abbeys, they were expert farmers, they were expert fishermen, they were expert wool merchants, miners. Uh, the monks would dig for coal and for salt, uh, although, you know, word of warning uh, for any children that are listening, uh, that is not an excuse to ever follow a monk 
underground all right uh whatever they tell you very very important that they're, they're, they're famous for something else now the monks and at melrose abbey for example uh there were twenty five thousand sheep you know kind of like a, a cell out at Pataudry. and and kelso was a town that was made up entirely of people who worked for the monks at the abbey as well as building great abbeys in the borders david was responsible for building some of scotland's most famous celebrated and imported and important abbeys and churches throughout the rest of the country. Um, so, for example, the the church that his mother Margaret had installed at Dunfermline, he raised that to an abbey, which became Dunfermline Abbey, a, a resting place for many of Scotland's monarchs, most notably Robert the Bruce. Uh, the first mention of the very famous St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh's High Street is in 1178, meaning that it was almost certainly installed by King David. Uh, he installed. Campus Kenneth, New Battle, and Holyrood Abbeys as well. Uh, there's a good story regarding Holyrood Abbey actually, um, and its origins. Basically, David he was he was breaking the Sabbath. He was out hunting in the the Drumselk Forest outside of Edinburgh when he was attacked by a great stag. And uh, being attacked by a stag in Edinburgh remains pretty commonplace to this day. They just they just tend to be dressed as like you know Jimmy Savile or Willy Wonka or something like that. But um, but David, the stag that attacked David. Um, as he was fighting it off, uh, he has this vision right before his eyes as, as the stag's coming down to him, his, his antlers, it, it turns into a sign of the cross. And so moved by his running with the, the Jesus stag, uh, David, he raised the old wooden church that existed in the Drumselk Forest to an abbey. And this became the very, very famous Holyrood Abbey. And uh, the crest of the Canongate, the Canongate is basically the, the lower half of the Royal Mile. Um, it's a white stag with a cross for antlers. So if you're in Edinburgh, next time you're in Edinburgh, if you're walking down the Royal Mile on the, the kind of bottom half of the Royal Mile, if you look up at the buildings, you'll see the crest of the Canongate on some of the buildings. And it's the white stag with the, the cross for antlers. And that's, uh, that's taken from King David and his running with the stag. As well as installing abbeys, uh, David was the first Scottish king to mint coins, uh, despite the fact that no one in England would accept them. Um, and he created the first towns in Scotland, or royal boroughs. Um, royal boroughs, they encouraged trade, uh, they encouraged commerce, and they allowed the crown to collect taxes. And these royal boroughs would become essential for anonymous, shitey towns in Scotland to have something to put on their signs as you drive into them. I mean, think about it. How the fuck else would Tain sell itself if it wasn't a royal borough of, for example? And the first royal boroughs in Scotland, they were Berwick, Roxburgh, Edinburgh and Stirling. And the introduction of town charters allowed each of these boroughs some autonomy to, to make their own laws and to, to make their own rules. And David introduced the law of the four boroughs, which was an assembly of commissioners that would, that would meet to protect the interest of Scotland's trading towns. So David set up towns, he built great abbeys and churches, uh, he created laws and boroughs and town charters that allowed different parts of the country to be more autonomous, to set things up and encourage trade in, in ways that made sense to them and, and their part of the country. But the thing that David did that probably had the, the biggest impact in Scotland was he introduced Norman feudalism, or at least a version of it to Scotland. Now, feudalism is a system whereby all of the land is held by the crown. And the crown 
gives that land to noble families, your lords, earls, etc., all that kind of stuff, in return for military service. So when the king decides he's going to go on a, on a campaign, he's going to start a war, the nobles provide him with an army. The nobility then lease that land to the knights. Now, the knights are essential for their military service. The knights are your kind of key warriors. Um, knights were, were really essential for military campaigns and crusades, and, and knights would be excused of all past and future sins, um, which is why the Queen hands them out to celebrity paedophiles, bankers, tax avoiders, all that kind of stuff. Now, the people at the bottom of the feudal system are the peasants and the serfs. Uh, these are the people who work the land and they offer their labour and a proportion of their good to the knights and to the nobles in exchange for protection. So essentially, the feudal system... Um, what it is, is it ensures that a very, very small percentage of landowners become exceedingly wealthy off of the work of the majority of the people with little to no chance at all of social mobility. Something that's obviously completely alien to us in the 21st century. I know, right? Now, in order to make the feudal system work, you require lots of castles to be built. Norman castles, they provide royal and baronial authority and, in theory at least, protection for the serfs and the peasants at the bottom of the feudal system. They are essential as well for the collection of tax as they protect the king's officers and the tax gatherers. Now, the Normans are obviously very, very clever when it comes to all this, but what I've never understood is they didn't seem to work out that all they had to do with a castle is build it, right, and then charge folk £18 to get in. You know? I mean, it works in Edinburgh after all. I don't see why they, they never figured it out. And all of these royal boroughs, abbeys, feudal castles, they made Scotland fall in line with how medieval kingdoms across Europe were set up at that time. David had a bureaucracy of chaplains running the administration of different areas, as well as a chancellor for legal advice and a chamberlain for financial control. And this, this bureaucratic system with a central monarchy, it allowed David to become the first king to have something at least close to complete control over his entire kingdom. Now, there were Celtic rebellions in 1130 and 1134, but David was able to suppress these. And where David excelled was his ability to embrace the Celtic culture of his subjects, because he didn't impose the feudal system entirely on the Highlands. The Scottish feudal system, for example, was far less rigid than that of England's. What David did was he was able to blend the Celtic the Celtic, sorry, kinship-based, Gaelic-speaking realms of kind of semi-autonomous princedoms, clanship, essentially, with a version of Norman feudalism. He was able to, to dip into both, and it, he was then able to make it work for the entire kingdom. This is what allowed him to have control over the, the entirety of his kingdom. Stuff like town charters, for example, they were written in Gaelic, Scots, English and French to recognise the different ethnic and linguistic backgrounds of the people that were living in Scotland at this time. Now, admittedly, right, none of this is, is very sexy. Right? I, I, I am aware of that. David is very much Scotland's admin king. It's not quite William Wallace charging across a battlefield shouting, FREEDOM! But despite that fact, and despite the fact he was obviously very good at paperwork, David, uh, he could harry and pillage with the, with the very best of them. David managed to win huge swathes of land in Northern England and bring them into the kingdom 
of Scotland. By the end of his reign, both Newcastle and Carlisle were in the Kingdom of Scotland. And it's said that before Carlisle and Newcastle were in Scotland, were a part of Scotland, the people who lived there, they were actually pretty well spoken. It's only after they became Scottish that they became completely incomprefucking-hendable. So how did, how did David get these parts of Northern England into his kingdom? Well, what he did was he took advantage, he took, sorry, advantage of a civil war that had broke out in England when Henry I died in 1135. When Henry died, he named his daughter, David's niece, Matilda, as heir. But then Henry's nephew and grandson of William the Conqueror, Steve, <clears throat> Stephen de Blois, de Blois, de Blois, de Blois, de Blois, de Blois, uh, he stole the throne for himself. And civil war would follow for the next 19 years in England. And David, he used this opportunity to extend his kingdom and win back the lost provinces of Northumbria. So basically, well, Matilda and Stephen are scrapping out down in England. He's going to help himself on the pretense that he's helping Matilda to Northumbria. Uh, he amassed a huge army that was drawn from all across Scotland. It consisted of Gales, Picts, as well as Norman knights. And David's pals in Norman England, they were absolutely appalled that one of their own, a Norman knight, a chivalrous Norman guy who had grown up in their company, was now at the head of an army of such ruffian savages. They had never in their life come across an army that consisted mainly of just guys holding pint glasses. And despite the ethnic diversity of David's army, it was an incredibly united army. It was a formidable army, the first truly Scottish army because it was taken from all different parts of the kingdom and David had complete control of it. And Scotland's first army, the first ever Scottish side to take to the battlefield, it did what is expected of Scottish sides. It lost. Um... <laughs> Despite the fact that, well, Stephen, he was busy putting down a baronial rebellion in Bristol. So when David's army faced off against the English at the Battle of the Standard in Yorkshire in August 1138, it looked like a shooting in because the English army, it had just been drawn from the kind of churches, the pulpits across northern England. It was a kind of motley crew of knights, peasants and priests. Um, but despite that fact, Scotland, they were able to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory in the, in the truly classic Scottish way. But despite the reverse, at the Battle of Standard, the Battle of the Standard, sorry, David still got what he wanted because neither Stephen nor Matilda were in a position to follow up on the victory. And so in the Treaty of Durham in 1139, Stephen was granted Northumberland and Cumberland. Um, it was given to, to, to him and to his son Henry. And now Scotland's border extended all the way to the Tees. Scotland had managed to achieve what it wanted through losing, which is surely the most Scottish possible way of winning. Um, although 10 years later, um, Matilda's son Henry, when he was fighting Stephen, he, he swore to David that should he become king, should he become Henry II, uh, he would grant David all of the land between the Tweed and the Tees. Uh, and when he did eventually become king in, 11 of, in 1154, he obviously completely ignored this promise and took back that land anyway. He would have been perfect for the old Better Together campaign. You know, they're good at promising shit that they can't deliver. I don't, know what they'll, I don't know what they'll promise us for the next referendum. You know, maybe, they, maybe they'll promise us all hoverboards or something like that. That'd be quite cool. 
David died in Carlisle in May 1153 uh, in his castle because Carlisle at that time was still a part of Scotland. He was 70 years old and he had ruled for 29 years. And on his death, the people of Carlisle, they flocked to see him because, uh, no, you know, no one in Carlisle had ever seen anyone live to 70 years old before. You know, he was kind of like a white witch in that respect, David. Now, a year before his death, his eldest son, Henry, died. And so the crown it passed to his eldest son, Malcolm, uh, David's grandson, who became Malcolm IV. He was crowned at Schoon in 1153. Now, Malcolm, he was only 12 years old when he became king, and having a minor on the throne it inevitably was going to trigger unrest, as the Americans are finding out for themselves right now. So Scotland no longer enjoyed the stability that it did under David's rule. Henry II, the King of England, he took advantage of the situation by renegading on his agreement with David regarding the lands in Northern England, and he demanded that these were returned, uh, which they were do, which they were do, which they were do, which they were, as part of the Treaty of Chester in 1157. Now, despite his youth and despite his poor health, Malcolm was again a sickly young man. He was a pragmatic king. He knew that he couldn't realistically hold on to the lands in Northern England that his grandfather had acquired. And Malcolm, he showed great courage and determination in putting down the Celtic rebellions that sprang up after the death of King David in the, in the Celtic North and West. He died at Jedburgh at 1165 at the age of 24, and he was replaced by his hot-headed, less talented and more aggressive younger brother, Liam Gallagher, uh, also known as William the Lion. So David is a, a Scottish king who built fantastic abbeys, he created the first towns in Scotland, he gave these towns autonomy over their own affairs, encouraging trade and commerce, he blended the Celtic clan system with the Norman feudal system, he had by far the greatest control of the entirety of his kingdom, he fielded the first ever truly united Scottish army, he brought Scotland into Europe, he made it a far more respected medieval kingdom by the rest of Europe, and he extended the Scottish border deep into northern England. And there is an argument that David is Scotland's finest ever king. And if it wasn't for that pesky Robert the Bruce single-handedly securing Scotland's independence, or, you know, that King James McFadden scoring that goal against the French in 2007, then, you know, I might actually tend to agree with you so that brings us to the end of today's podcast folks thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed it i hope you're enjoying the series if this is the first of the montebank history of scotland podcast that you've listened to then go back listen to a few other ones they're all the same it's the same shite you're gonna have fun you'll enjoy it it's good um if you are enjoying the series and you'd like to contribute to it if uh, and when i say contribute i mean literally just buy me like a cup of coffee if you were to meet me and you'd be like that oh daniel do you know what? i'm really enjoying those podcasts like, can i can i get you a cup of coffee then you can do that you can contribute at the buy me a coffee at my buy me a coffee account i'm on there at montebank history of scotland or you, beca you can become a patron of the Montebank History of Scotland podcast at my Patreon account. Again, same thing, just go on there, at Montebank History of Scotland. Uh, what I try to do is through both of those platforms each week, I try to raise enough money to be able to send someone who is deserving a bottle of whiskey. So it could be like a key worker, 
an NHS staff worker, uh, it can be a patient parent or just a thoroughly sound person. Uh, you can go on to any of these platforms or you can go on any of my social media. Uh, just give me a follow at Montebank Tours on Twitter, Instagram, all the usual places. Um, and you can leave a comment, you can send me a DM, um, anything, you know, send me an email, whatever, and you can nominate someone to receive a bottle of whiskey. Um, so again, anything you can you can put towards that, I do really, really appreciate it what i try to do is each week i try to link the podcast with a with a whiskey in scotland so something that fits with the the history what we've been talking about and it's a bit more difficult with with david because king david's uh, obviously most well renowned for his work in the borders you know uh, all the abbeys that he built in the border towns uh and there basically hasn't been a whiskey distillery that has existed in the border since 1837 until recently 2018 uh, and the Borders Distillery, I think it's called, I think it's literally called the Borders Distillery. Uh, they opened their doors just a couple of years ago, so obviously there's no, um, there's no malts yet to be uh, distilled by them. But they are selling um, like blended whiskey. They've got, they've got their own blend. Um, so if you want to nominate someone, I will, I will send them a bottle of that. Obviously, I don't have any tasty notes. Can't tell you much about it. But it's great to see distilling come back to the Borders. Um, and I imagine, especially with, with brand new distilleries, they're probably suffering more than 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 any other um, in the distilling industry in Scotland at the moment. So if I can buy a bottle of them and I can help them out and I can send it to someone, then I would love to do that. Um, so yeah, you know what to do in that respect. Like I say, give me a wee follow on any of my uh, social media accounts at Multibank Tours. Thanks again. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Cheerio. Bye bye.